As we said this morning, the ranks of the early church swelled from 120 to 8,000 in six to eight weeks. Quite a growth, a phenomenal growth. Revival breaking out all around. What an exciting time to be in a place where God's just moving and so many people are hungry to know the Lord and people are going out to the streets of Jerusalem excited about Jesus. Speaking about that person that has changed their life, Jesus Christ. Jesus, before he left, said to his disciples, it is expedient for you that I go. Now, I'm sure that when the apostles heard that, they said, what do you mean is expedient for us that you go? It's expedient for us that you stay, not go. He was the Messiah. He weaned them spiritually. He brought them to that place from just being a fisherman to being fishers of men. But Jesus said, it's expedient for you that I go, because if I don't go, I can't send the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit will be in you. He will teach you and lead you into all truth. We see in the book of Acts how expedient it was for Jesus Christ to leave. While Jesus was on the earth, he limited his ministry to a small geographical area called Israel. Didn't really travel more than a hundred miles from his own home. But by leaving and shedding forth the Holy Spirit to live inside every single individual believer, they could then go out and be that living witness that Jesus Christ was. They became little Christs, which is really what the word, root, root word Christian means. Little Jesuses. Those little followers of Christ that are like Jesus. Jesus said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But then what did Jesus say to his disciples? You are the light of the world. Now, I should have had you turn to Acts chapter 1 because that's where I want to begin before we get into Acts 11. A little background. In verse 1 of Acts, it says, The former account that I made, O Theophilus. Now, what he's speaking about is the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he's talking about the book that he wrote that we know as the Gospel of Luke. The former account that I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. I love that phrase. It shows that Jesus hasn't ended. He's saying, when I wrote to you before, that is what Jesus began to do and to teach. Here's the continuation of it. The ministry of Jesus Christ did not end at His resurrection and ascension. It continued all the way through the Acts. Now, the title of the book in front of you says, The Acts of the Apostles. I cross mine out and put The Acts of Jesus Christ through the apostles. Because Jesus Christ is still living in this book, still working in this book. By shedding the Holy Spirit to live within them, Luke and the Gospel was what Jesus began to do and to teach. The book of Acts is what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. And by the way, it didn't end in chapter 28 of Acts, but it continues through today. Jesus is still working in the midst of His church. Jesus said this, The Holy Spirit will come upon you He will empower you so that you can be witnesses to me or of me in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then in Samaria and then in the uttermost parts of the earth. We are the uttermost parts of the earth. If you take Jerusalem as the center, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, that's us. So the commission that Jesus Christ gave to the disciples, they fulfilled. They went out and they did it. And the gospel went From Peter through the apostles, it went to Paul the apostle. He was taken to Rome. 
as he appealed to Caesar there in Caesarea, and the gospel was preached in Rome and disseminated throughout the whole world. And so Jesus, what he began to do and to teach is continued in the book of Acts. How did God do this? How did God spread the gospel? Acts chapter 8. Verse 1. Now Saul, and this is Paul the Apostle, B.C., was consenting to his death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. That's how he did it, through persecution. Jesus said, you're going to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And so, persecution came into the church and they were scattered and they went to Judea and all throughout Samaria. Devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed, and the lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. The vehicle that God used to spread the gospel was persecution. And let me say that persecution never hurt the church. It only helped to strengthen the church. Because every time the church was persecuted, that sort of weeded out the nominal Christians. You will find that the strongest Christians today are those who are living in persecuted countries. Because not everyone's so quick to say, hey, I'm a Christian. Because it means they might give up their life. They might give up their family. So, you will find the only ones who say, I'm a Christian and publicly proclaim it, are those who are very strong, deeply committed Christians. And you will find that the strongest time of the church was when the church was under persecution. I heard John MacArthur say one time that he was praying for persecution in the United States. Not that he loves to see people persecuted, but he loves a strong church. That's an interesting sort of prayer. I never looked at it that way. But persecution never hurt the church. When they were persecuted, they went to another place and spread the gospel. When they were persecuted there, they split to another place and preached the gospel. They were always on the move. As Satan tried to stamp out the fire, some of the sparks went up and landed in other places and caught on fire. Little fires going everywhere. But Satan knows the old adage, if you can't beat them, you join them. And so later on through church history, on 450 A.D., Satan joined the church and started leavening the church from within, corrupting the church from within. Because he couldn't attack it from the outside, he began to attack it from the inside. Because the persecution wasn't working, he began to get Christians to compromise their faith. The marriage of church and state. The taking on of some of the uh, characteristics of the world around them. Now we get to Acts chapter 11. And it says in verse 19 of Acts 11, Now those who were scattered after the persecution arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Now there's another persecution and they're moving farther northward, up into Antioch. 
Now, remember Antioch because Antioch becomes the center of Christianity. Whereas Jerusalem was the center for the spreading of the gospel. That's where the apostles were. It was moved to Antioch because of the persecution. In the early days of Christianity, the disciples huddled around Jerusalem. The apostles were there. That was sort of the mother church, for lack of a better term. Very much lack of a better term. But that was sort of the headquarters. And they were sending people out from Jerusalem. And the gospel was being preached mainly to the Jews and not to the Gentiles. Because if you remember, the Jews didn't have a whole lot of concern for the Gentiles, did they? And even the Jewish Christians at the beginning were hesitant about preaching the gospel to anyone who wasn't a Jew. Because let's face it, the Jews believed that if you weren't a Jew, you weren't saved. In fact, they had a saying, the rabbis, that God created the Gentiles as kindling for the fires of hell. So consequently, they're not too excited about Gentiles. But God was breaking the barriers, broadening their horizons to see that every single person could have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So because of this persecution, they're moving farther northward and we see Antioch becomes the center for sending people out into various parts of the world. In fact, when Paul goes on his missionary journeys, he leaves from Antioch, he goes and returns to Antioch, and then he leaves again and returns. And this is the center for the sending or the missionary aspect of the church. Let me give you some background on Antioch. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It had about 500,000 people like Albuquerque, about the same size. It was a wicked city. It was full of corruption. It was full of idol worship and sexual uh, orgies. In the town of Antioch, there was a shrine to the goddess Daphne. And the Romans believed, <laughs> there's a really funny kind of a thinking, they believed that uh, Apollo, who was a god, uh, was interested in this goddess Daphne and was pursuing her to make her his lover. But there were some other gods who loved her just as much as Apollos, and one of the other gods in jealousy turned her, her into a tree, a laurel tree. So outside the city, there was these laurel groves where there were priestesses. The priestesses were prostitutes. And the way they would worship would be through sexual orgies. And they would take the money that they got from the men, and that's how they funded the grove and the temple to Daphne. This happened a lot throughout the Roman and Greek empires, a lot of um, sexual abuse, worshiping with sexual orgies. It was a black city, corrupt. And it's interesting that in this corrupt city, the church grew the strongest. You know why? Because light shines in the darkest places. You don't go outside in the sunshine with a flashlight so you can see your way. But if it's dark outside and you have a flashlight, it sure helps, doesn't it? And people sure notice if you're coming down the street when it's pitch black and you have a flashlight. They said that in World War II, a plane flying overhead said that he could see a soldier light up a cigarette 11 miles away because it was so black because of the war. Light shines in the darkest places and the gospel will be spread in Antioch. In fact, all of Antioch will know about the Christian faith. In fact, look at verse 26. Skip ahead. When they had found him, they brought him to Antioch and so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught great many people and the disciples were first called Christians there in Antioch. God was starting to break down the barriers that the Jews had against the Gentiles. 
They were breaking down the exclusiveness, the sectarianism that people were having in Antioch. Because the first part of Acts, we see the gospel mainly to the Jews, and Peter is in the forefront, he's the main character. But now we're going to see the gospel to the Gentiles, and Paul the apostle is in the center. As he goes outside the borders of Israel now, no longer on Jewish territory, in Antioch, this melting pot, where people from all over the world came and lived. And God is breaking down these denominational, if you will, barriers. I have found, or I believe, that the more spiritual, the closer to God a person gets, the less denominational he becomes. He doesn't see himself as Catholic, Baptist, Methodist. He sees everyone as Christians who believe in Jesus Christ. He doesn't try to place himself as being superior over somebody else, saying, oh, well, we're this, oh, well, we're that. We're brothers. We're Christians. We're believers. And I think the closer a person comes to Jesus Christ, the more those barriers come down. Paul the Apostle said that. Paul, Paul said, some of you say I'm of Apollos. Some say I'm of Paul. Paul said, you're all carnal. Because you set up these little barriers. Well, I'm a this. Well, I'm a that. I like to say I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. And isn't it interesting how people like to pigeonhole us? Well, I know you're a Christian, but what are you? What kind of it? What color of a Christian are you? You Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, what? You just tell them you're a believer in Jesus Christ and they just don't know how to handle that. You can tell them what mold you fit in. Oh, okay, great. Now I can handle you. Now I can deal with you. But the barriers were being broken down and now the gospel is getting out to the Gentiles. And we see in verse 20, But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, that is, the Greeks, and they were preaching the Lord Jesus. Notice what they were pushing. Jesus Christ. They weren't having people sign up, members of their church. They weren't pushing the social bazaars. They were presenting a very simple message, and that was Jesus Christ. And let's remember, when we share the gospel, to keep the message as simple as possible. To not get so cluttered up so that we can't relate to people. But present Jesus Christ as a living person that people can reach out to and be changed. I remember during the Jesus movement of the early 70s, some of you may remember this too, how that there were so many young people turning to Jesus Christ, especially in California, there were so many people. And the church that I went to was filled mainly with barefooted people with blue jeans and long hair carrying Bibles with big smiles on their faces. Just change and transform. And some of the churches got wind of what was happening and they sort of disdained what was going on. And one minister wrote in the newspaper about the Jesus movement and this other church who was down the way called Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. They said, oh, all these young people, all they know is Jesus. <laughs> Gee, what a shame. <laughs> Poor guys, we haven't told them all about our committees and programs and growth packets and all that. They, all they know is Jesus. What else do you need? They kept it simple. They were preaching, proclaiming that relationship. They were preaching the Lord Jesus, that simple message. And then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far 
as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and he encouraged or exhorted them that with purpose of heart they should continue or that they should cleave unto the Lord. Barnabas. How I love this man. The word Barnabas means son of consolation. That was the name that was given to him by the church. Son of consolation. And this guy was an encourager. He was an exhorter. The word exhortation doesn't mean to be someone of the gospel Gestapo where you start pointing the finger at everybody. and That's not exhortation. It means to encourage or to build up. And he was the son of consolation. He went around encouraging people. He had the knack of bringing people who had differences, of bringing them together on common ground. And how I thank God for Barnabas because he's the one who's going to encourage Paul the Apostle to get back into the ministry. Because up to this point, it had been nine years since Paul was called way back at Damascus. He hadn't been doing a thing for nine years. And Barnabas is going to send for him and they're going to come to the church at Antioch. Now it says in verse 24, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Did you get that? They were added to who? To the Lord, not to the to a denomination or to a church. They were added to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek after Saul. He saw the work that was going on. He figured, I can't handle this alone. This isn't a one-man show. Let's bring alongside people who are gifted, who can work in the ministry together. And so he sent after Paul. Now, Paul would be perfect for this because Paul was born a Roman citizen in a Greek colony and he was a Hebrew. And he studied at Jerusalem under Gamaliel. And since Antioch was such a melting pot and there was Jewish colonies, there was a lot of Greek influence and it was in the Roman Empire, Paul would be a natural. That's what Paul Paul said. He could become all things to all men. If you speak to a Jew, he goes, yeah, I'm Hebrew, I studied under Gamaliel. Another guy, well, I'm a Greek philosopher. Oh, I was raised in a Greek city. Yeah, well, I'm a Roman. I was born a Roman citizen. So he had all of this background of this diverse culture, so he sent uh, to seek after Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now remember, nine years ago, from this point, Saul was on the Damascus Road and was converted by the Lord Jesus Christ. The church at Jerusalem didn't believe that Paul meant business. They thought this was just a joke. They were afraid of him, even though he said, hey, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus Christ. They were afraid of him because Paul used to kill Christians. That was his weekend hobby. He'd go out and snuff Christians out because they called upon the name of the Lord. And now he's coming back and they think, oh man, he's going to try to find out who, who are the Christians of this town. He's going to kill them. But it was Barnabas who brought Saul to the early church and said, hey, this guy's okay. I checked him out. He's all right. It's true. He is really born again. And he was that son of encouragement. How we need sons of encouragement. People who won't just say, hey, brother, you're blowing it to the max. Say, brother, I love you. Let me encourage you. Let me come alongside of you and build you up. Let me supply that which you lack. I want to build you up. I want to be a Barnabas, a son of consolation. So when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, verse 26. And so it was that for a whole year... They assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. You know, when I think of Paul the Apostle, I thank God 
for Barnabas. Thank God for, for him going out of his way to seek after Saul. Because if Paul wouldn't have come to Antioch, he wouldn't have come to Rome. If he wouldn't have come to Rome, the gospel wouldn't have gotten throughout the whole world. It would have stayed sort of a Mideast religion. So God was using Barnabas to get Saul into Antioch to send him to Rome later on. So God had this all planned. You know what's beautiful? Is that it took nine years before Saul or Paul was really used by the Lord in a mighty way. So often we get discouraged when we don't see God moving in our time schedule. God, I've known you for two months now. How come I don't have my own evangelistic crusade? (laughs) And we always have to encourage young Christians who come and are so zealous to serve the Lord to get prepared to study the Word. To not go out in the power of their flesh, but to let God raise them up. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and in due time He will lift you up. Paul waited for nine years before he was effectively used of the Lord. And boy, it paid off to wait, didn't it? Because he affected so many people. He wrote so many letters to churches. He went to Rome, got to speak to Caesar, to Agrippa, to Festus, to Felix. Just the Lord invested a lot in his life. And God used him mightily. Now it says that when they were in Antioch, in verse 26, that for a whole year, an entire year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. How I love that. He didn't say he preached to them, but he taught them. Unfortunately, the great vocation of the church has just become preaching. Now let me explain that preaching is necessary and very, very good. Preaching is for unbelievers. Preaching is for those who have not made that commitment to the Lord, don't know the Lord. They need to be have the gospel preached or proclaimed to them. Once a person knows the Lord, they need to be taught. They need to be fed. And there are people who have been preached at for 5, 10, 15 years. And every week they know all about how to be born again and to repent and to confess their sins. And it's the same message. Now granted, there's new people every week and you want to give them that opportunity. But after a person comes to know the Lord, he doesn't need to be preached to. He needs to be taught. And as you look at the book of Acts, they had them in balance. They would preach and teach. Jesus would preach, but he would also teach. He would proclaim things to the multitudes, but he'd take his disciples, those who knew him, aside and disciple them. He would teach them. He would feed them. And they were feeding there for a period of a year, feeding the flock. They became the leaders of the church. These were the shepherds. They were teaching, both Paul and Barnabas. Teaching together, co-laboring, building up and edifying the body of Christ. And it says that they were first called Christians in Antioch. The term Christian was actually a term of mockery. Much like somebody would call you a Jesus freak today. That's what Christian men in those days. To us, we glory. Yes, I'm a Christian. In those days, it was a term of mockery. They'd say Christian. That was like saying Jesus freak. And it wasn't a term of uh, then that they were... It's like you don't like when people call you a Jesus freak today. I don't consider myself a freak. Maybe some do, but I don't. But I consider myself a Christian, but originally the term was a term of mockery. They were making fun of them, calling them Christians at Antioch. To be called a Christian in those days was difficult. It was a time of persecution like some of the countries in Asia today. In all of the Roman Empire, there was little statuettes of Caesar. And as people would walk the streets, 
And they would come to this statue of Caesar. There was this little incense burner by Caesar. And they would walk by and put a pinch of incense in and say, Caesar is Lord. And they'd walk by. And there was guards around them. Until Christianity came along. And the Christians would walk through the town. They wouldn't put any incense in. They'd walk by and look at the statue and go, Jesus is Lord. And they were called Christians. It was a term of disdain. It wasn't easy to be a Christian in those days. Now this is the development of the early church as it moved from Jerusalem into Antioch. Paul and Barnabas are the leaders. Now God is going to take this church just as He took the Jerusalem church and moved them and got their vision just outside of Jerusalem. Instead of Jerusalem just saying, well, we've got to evangelize Jerusalem and quit. They evangelized Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria. Their vision was wider. It was more than just themselves. And that got to the place where they moved it to Antioch. Now Antioch is going to do the same thing. Their vision is going to be broadened. Turn with me to chapter 13. Verse 25 of chapter 12 says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they took with them John, whose surname was Mark. You'll find out later on. Blew it. Verse 1. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them. And having fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and they sent them away. Chapter 13 becomes a model for true Christian service. And the emphasis on this chapter, you're going to see a lot of emphasis on the Holy Spirit sending people and commissioning people. Now, I believe that God calls every Christian to a special work, a specific work. All of us tonight are called by God in a ministry of some kind somewhere. Even if it's a boring job you're at. If you could begin to look at that as a ministry somehow, where you're rubbing shoulders with people, even if it's a factory job and it's boring, it can be a ministry. You say, yeah, but I work in a place and I'm, I don't work around people at all. I have my own little isolated booth. Maybe God had called you into intercessory prayer. Could be a ministry. But when it comes to ministry, we should never lay a condition before God. Saying, God, I want to serve you if I can go over here or if I can do this or if you'll send me there should never be conditional. It should be, God, my life is yours. I'm open to you at any time. You can tell me where and when and what you want me to do. And that is exactly what they did here in Antioch. In verse 1, we don't have to read through all the names again, but we notice there's quite a variety of names, quite a list of people. A blend of different characters, people from different backgrounds, different gifts, not only teachers but prophets. And as we read later on, there was much more than just that. There was a blend of people. The ministry wasn't a one-man show. It was, as we read this morning, people working collectively together, having all things in common. They just didn't come and let one person do it all, or two or three or four or five, but all of them were actively participating in the church, in the early church. From different countries, Simon of Niger, Menaean, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, who was from the Greek colony, being a Hebrew. Different people from different backgrounds, all on common ground working for the Lord. You know, one of the neatest experiences is to meet people from other countries, especially if you can't speak their language. 
And if they're Christians, you feel a kindred tie immediately like you're a brother or sister with them. Have you ever felt that? Somebody from another country and you just go, wow, he's a brother. I don't even know the guy. He's from the other side of the world, but I feel so close all of a sudden. When we were in Jerusalem one year, we were up, up in the upper room where the disciples held the Last Supper. And as we were in there praying, a group came in from Scandinavia and they were singing uh, Praise God from Whom All Blessings Flow. And I, I couldn't sing it, you know, Kafern Gaburn, however they say it. In their own language, they were singing this song in a Scandinavian accent. And But we could hear the melody and we could sing along in English. And we all, you know, got closer to each other, gave each other hugs, and we couldn't even speak a word of their language. They couldn't speak English, but we felt so close. We felt, hey, we're one body. Even though we're thousands of miles apart, here we are in Jerusalem singing the same song in two different languages, praising the same God. And it was such a neat experience to feel that warmth of fellowship, even though we didn't speak each other language. And this is what is going on here in Antioch. In verse 2 it says, as they ministered to the Lord. Now that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? We say, God minister to me. Well, as they were ministering to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them. There are, <clears throat> excuse me, there are steps in finding God's will. And you'll notice first that they were ministering to the Lord, speaking of their devotion or their worship. God wants to reveal His will to us. But before God sends us out, God always requires that we spend time with Him. Because if we don't spend time with Him, how are we going to hear from Him when He speaks? And they were ministering to the Lord, and let's not forget what else, they fasted. Now, a lot of us can handle praying and worshiping, but fasting is something that really is lacking in the church today. Fasting me? I can't go through a whole meal, I'll keel over. And, you know, if I don't eat a meal or, or, but they did, and we don't need to lay a good guilt trip on people. It's, it's a voluntary thing. I would recommend a book, however, called God's Chosen Fast by, who is it, Arthur Wallace? Is that who it's by? A great book on fasting, a good scriptural balance on fasting. And the purpose of fasting, and the purpose of fasting is to keep your ear attuned to the Spirit of God. It's where you deny your flesh some of those fleshly desires, some of the food and so forth, and you're letting your spirit just have all the attention tuning into God. It's not a spiritual diet. That's not the purpose of it. So we can diet and call it fasting, but it was usually accompanied with prayer, or in this case, with worship. So they were seeking the Lord in ministering to the Lord by prayer and by fasting. And the Lord spoke to them. He said, separate Paul and Barnabas. Now, you know, it's interesting. He didn't tell them where. He didn't say, Paul and Barnabas, here is your schedule for the next year of what I want you to do in the ministry. Now, in a week, you're going to be going here and then I want you to catch a boat over to here and meet this person. He just said, go. I'll lead you one step at a time, but just go. Just be faithful to what I've called you to do. What's also interesting about this church is they didn't begrudge the fact that they were losing their leadership. These were the leaders of the church. Paul and Barnabas, they founded the church. God was calling them off. Now, I imagine someone said, oh, no, Paul's leaving. Oh, boy, Paul really, man, that guy's so hot. He speaks to me. And Barnabas has such a loving personality when he shares. And heck, Paul leads my home Bible study. If he leaves, I'm not going anymore. If Paul's gone, man, forget it. I'm not going to go. 
But the ministry didn't revolve around a man or two men. It revolved around the Lord. And there was a commitment to each other and to God, regardless of who the leadership was. But God called out the founders of the church and told them to go somewhere to, to minister. And they were open to that. It was a sending church. They go, yeah, let's spread them around. Let's spread the gospel around. Send them out. Let them go out and share what God has done here. So the Holy Spirit said, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and they sent them away. The laying on of hands. There's two kinds of laying on of hands in the scripture, by the way. There's the good kind and there's the bad kind. It says that they would lay their hands on people and pray, but it also said that the guards would come and lay hands on them and take them away. And I don't think they were praying over them when they grabbed them. But the good kind of laying on of hands is where the body or the elders get together, some of the men and women, and pray specifically as people were being sent out as they were going out in the work of the ministry. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. It says in verse 13, Until I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Now look at chapter 5. And it says in verse 22, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourselves pure. What it means by that, do not lay your hands suddenly, is don't be too quick to raise up a novice in the ministry. Don't just go laying your hands on people saying, Oh great, you've known the Lord a week? Great, we'll send you out as an evangelist. Let's pray for you. And Paul the Apostle said, in sending people out that they shouldn't be a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, they fall into the same condemnation as the devil. And part of the work of the ministry, Paul says, not being a novice, because he could get puffed up. Now, Paul didn't say, now he has to go to, you know, 50 years of Bible school or whatever. But he had to have a mature walk. And so, here, as they were in Antioch, ministering to the Lord, and they were sensitive to the Lord, and they were praying and fasting, God was speaking to them because they were listening. And as they were listening, God says, I want you to take your leaders and I'm sending them away. And I want you to lay hands on them. I want you to pray for them. As as that uh, point of contact of faith, the laying on of hands. And so they did that. It says back in Acts chapter 13. And they sent them away in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And then the chain of events all the way through the book of Acts is God leads them from one place to another and to another. So first, let's review this. First, God calls. How does God call? We must be available. We must never lay a condition before God. God, here am I, as Isaiah said. Send me. I'll go anywhere you want me to. Send me. You need me as a representative? Here I am. So first, God calls, and that requires that we become available to the Lord. Second of all, God commissions. And third of all, God qualifies. Or He enables. He equips the person. God calls, He commissions, and then He qualifies. And God doesn't necessarily call the qualified, but He qualifies the called. When God puts a calling, a calling on someone, when God puts a calling on someone, He then anoints the person and gives the person equipment to do what God calls him to do. So never think that you're exempt from God using you in a mighty way. God can never use me. 
Step out, let God use you. God will qualify you and equip you. Yeah, but I haven't gone to four years of seminary. I mean seminary. <laughs> hey, God can still call and God can still equip you. And sometimes it's necessary to go to seminary. Sometimes it's necessary to go to Bible school because those are places where we do get equipment. But it's not always necessary. God can use you. When He calls you, He will commission you and God will qualify you. How does He do it? Verse 2, As they ministered to the Lord, the Holy Spirit said, Separate unto me Paul and Barnabas. Verse 4, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, and Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. You get the idea? That's the qualification. That's the equipment is the Holy Spirit. God will fill up a person with His Spirit and enable him to do the work that He calls him to do. Being called, being commissioned, and being qualified by the Lord. Now, this is the early church at Antioch. This morning we read about the early church at Jerusalem. Jerusalem, they were growing it was exciting, but they were also under persecution. And God used the persecution to spread them north into Judea and Samaria. God used the persecution in Samaria to bring them north into Antioch. And from there they went to Antioch of Pisidia, and they went to Galatia, and to Philippi, and to Corinth, and to Athens, and finally to Rome. They were ascending church. They spent time before the Lord. And the Holy Spirit told them to separate Paul and Barnabas to them. Now, what can we do as a church when it comes to outreach? When it comes to being a sending church? Because there's people who come here and some go to organizations like Youth with a Mission. Some go overseas for a while and they come back. We know some of them. Some of even the leadership. God called Mark out of here permanently. What do we do for the outreach of the world? for getting a vision for the entire world. Well, first, we can read about it like we're doing tonight. Second of all, we can pray about it. We can pray for those who go out. We can pray for world outreach and evangelism. Third, or second, yeah, third, we can support financially those who are going. Maybe you can't go yourself, but you can help those who are going. Now, there's an interesting concept in this. And David in the Old Testament told his troops as he went out to battle, and as they would go out to battle and they would take the spoils of the enemies and bring them back into the camp, David said, those who stay behind and watch after the stuff will receive the same reward as those who go out and fight on the battlefield. Paul the Apostle said that fruit would abound to the account of those people who helped send Paul out. Isn't that beautiful? Now, think of some of those missionaries that we're supporting over in India. Somebody's going to walk up to you in heaven and go, oh, praise God, that little dollar that you gave helped support the guy who preached the gospel to me. And you'll get a reward as well as the person who preached the gospel to him. Isn't that exciting? We can be a part of world evangelism that way. And the last thing we can do is go. If God calls us to go, who, me? Why not? Maybe God is calling us to different places. We don't know. Jesus told the 70, He said, the harvest is great, but the laborers are very few. Isn't that the truth? But He said, pray therefore that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers out into the harvest. And 
They prayed. And you know who God sent? Them. The next chapter, he says he took the 70 and he sent them two by two. He said, now you go out into all of these cities around Galilee and you preach the gospel. God, just work in Galilee and we just pray for a mighty revival. And all of a sudden, they find themselves out being the ones spreading the gospel. So always be prepared to be involved more than just praying if God calls us to it. We pray, we can support, but we can also go. This is the Antioch church. There was a sending church and it received those back in, but it was a flow of people going out and spreading the gospel. We must be open to that. And I know some of you that God is already speaking to a lot of your hearts. You've shared with me that God is sending you away or preparing you for ministries in other parts. You know, we have no big anticipation to have a large church or to, to pack it in and all that kind of stuff. God is doing that. He's adding to the church daily. It was never any kind of a program of ours. But our program is to get people fed and sent out. Now, that might mean here in Albuquerque, doesn't mean that they have to go, but it might mean here in Albuquerque and just strengthening the body of Christ, but it might mean that God is going to raise us up and strengthen us and send us out. Some of you, God might have called you to be pastors. God might raise you and send you to a place and you might just start a Bible study in some apartment complex and people will come and then you might rent a theater somewhere and you'll have a church. (laughs) You never know. God might be speaking to some of your hearts and get you out to different places of the United States. Albuquerque is our Jerusalem. New Mexico and the area of the southwest is our Judea. Samaria, the United States. The uttermost parts of the earth, anything outside those boundaries. So this is the church at Antioch. I'm sharing this tonight so that we can be prepared that God would give us vision outside of just here. That we can begin to pray for those who are going out in the fields because we're a part of it. Now, Tuesday morning, at bright and early six in the morning, we're flying to India, my wife and I. And I thought also it might be nice before we leave, since this is the last night we'll be with you for a couple weeks, um, that some of the elders of the church could come forward, some of the men on the communion board and all, and we could, um, could lay hands on me. Not the bad way, but the good way. And, <laughs> and pray as God sends us to India. Why don't we do 